Hello and welcome to another There Are Giants podcast. I am your host, Roger Munter, and it has been far too long since I've had the Athletics' Melissa Lockhart on here, um, who I always love chatting Giants uh, and and baseball in general with. Melissa, thanks so much for taking a little time to chat. How are things out uh, in Northern California? Good, yeah. It's, it seems like it should be the slow season, and yet somehow I feel like we're busier than we were in the middle of the season. So, uh, yeah, I feel like the later that the World Series goes, the less time we have off between when that ends and when everything just ramps right back up again. So uh, it's it's interesting. <laughs> there is no off season, really. I mean, in terms of the work, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, I just got back from Arizona, and it's like all of a sudden things are happening. Um, well, I you know I want to start today. Um, by talking kind of personal stuff, we're obviously going to talk to the about the Giants. Um, but I want to talk to you about kind of your experience of baseball this year. I think anybody who really knows your work and and follows you understands that uh, the Oakland A's are a a lifelong passion for you. You you kind of started doing the same thing I'm trying to do a long time ago with their their system, and I've always admired kind of the work you did there. Um, it's obviously been a trying year for Oakland A's fans, uh, and I think I just want to start today to asking you a little bit about what your personal relationship with baseball has been this year uh, and how you've sort of responded to um, uh, you know, a d- depressing trend kind of uh, for, for Oakland A's fans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, thanks for asking that. I think, um, you know, it's, it's an f- interesting line that you hold when you're reporting on something, but you also obviously, you know, take great pleasure in following something. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, that was how I sort of entered um, covering baseball at all was my interest in, you know, the Oakland A's and they were the team I rooted for growing up and the team that I knew, knew the best and, you know, relationships with people in that organization that have gone back, you know, now 20 years, it's hard to believe it's been that long since I started (laughs) Oakland clubhouse way back then. But um, this has definitely been the most difficult year uh, covering baseball for sure that I've had, um, probably even harder than 2020, which is hard to believe, you know, just, yeah. so, um, it's just the baseball never seemed that important. Um, you know, I tried to engage with it. Um, but everything else that was going on with, um, you know, the, the organization's decisions to, um, you know, go and the parallel paths and the different ridiculous press conferences and the sort of um, ham-handed way that things have gone and the strain that, you know, you see that taking on people that, you know, you've gotten to know in that organization too. So it's not even just yeah. that it impacts you, but you see how much it's really impacting the people that work there. Um the players, I think it took an incredible toll on on them, um, which was really unfair, I think, because that's not their job to have to carry that burden. They're just yeah. baseball players. They shouldn't have to be spokespeople for an organization in, in the sense that they were sort of left to have that same with the coaching staff. Um, so yeah, the baseball definitely took a, a backseat. Um, and I found even just this offseason, the stuff I normally do when reporting on the the team, I just haven't been able to ramp back up again. I mean, I did a Giants Rule 5 preview. I did not do an A's Rule 5 preview this year. It's the first time, I think, in at least 15, if not 20 years, I didn't do one. And it just didn't seem important, you know, like this, this yeah. week is a much more important thing that's happening in that organization than um, Rule 5 protection. So, um, yeah, it's weird. And, you know, but it's also funny, too, because as down as you get about it and then something fun or interesting happens and immediately your emotions get sucked right back in. It's such a weird 
uh, aspect of um, following something like this that I, I think it's it's kind of unique and hard to explain. But um, definitely emotionally, it's been a, a down year for sure. Yeah, obviously, um, yeah, most Giants fans have trouble getting wrapping their heads around this because we've we've lived in this era of such sort of you know success and 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 relative safety i personally go back to a time where you know an existential existential threat kind of loomed over this organization for for many years so i really understand that i remember thinking as you know like a 15 year old well what am i going to do who am i who am i going to root for who am i going to follow and it's it's you're right the baseball doesn't feel very important when you are thinking that way and it is a strain on the the players the coaches the fans obviously does it change your really i mean obviously you said you didn't do a rule five uh piece does it change your relationship to writing about the organization um that all this is swirling on top yeah i mean i think you can't cover the team in the way that you would cover it if it was just straight um normal transactions right like nothing is normal um you know you look at a basic transaction and they're they're almost everything is connected to what's going on with a potential move. So, you know, the, the fact that um you were looking, you know, three years ago, this was a team that was predicted to to maybe challenge for a World Series. And then you're looking this year and it's like, are they going to win 50 games? I mean, that's that doesn't happen in a void. It doesn't happen by accident. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it isn't a matter of looking at a trade and sort of analyzing it in the way that you would look at a trade and analyze it. You have to look at it through the vein of this is what an individual is attempting to do to an organization in order to set up a, a certain thing. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think it does change that. I think it also changes what people are interested in reading, to be honest with you. I mean, I think um, part of the decision in not writing that story is I felt like it was unfair to the people that would be reading it because, you know, what, why would they have an interest in you know, these three players that were going to be added to a 40 man roster that they may not care about in a year. I think, it, you know, the, the bigger stories needed to be saved for the things that are going to affect the fans long term. And, you know, essentially we we write for the fans, right? We're writing right. for an audience that, um, you know, has an emotional investment to it. So um, definitely, I, I think I've felt, um, you know, that what people have wanted to read this year is dramatically different than what they would want to read in a normal year. And, and you do adjust to that. Yeah. One thing that I think fans really have trouble grasping is the way in which organizational culture can filter down uh, to an individual basis. You know, I've had conversations with people who work in, in, in certain organizations, not to be named uh, and, and dysfunction from the ownership suite really can affect people all the way down, how they do their job, how they just feel about coming to work every day. Uh, it's, it's a big issue for all of these people. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that was so interesting was I think you saw how there is an organizational culture, which, you know, interestingly, is now sort of being pilfered off into the giant. <laughs> I think you're going to see quite a bit of that culture showing up um, next year. But, um, you know, there there was an infrastructure in place and in what the Oakland A's do and who they are and what type of players they produce. And that very much still stayed in effect. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there was a real tight knit group. I think Mark Kotze really showed a lot of leadership as the manager of that team. Um, and, you know, basically not 
kicking the can down, you know, down the street, like they were still responsible and showing up every day, but there still is a strain in that you're not being given good enough players to compete with on a daily basis. Right. And they can't change that. But, um, you know, so much of what had been built in that organization for 30 years, 40 years, dating back to, you know, the, the early 1980s in terms of player development and everything else, you know, is still there, um, but it's going to continue to erode as this sort of ownership direction goes. And it's sad to see because there is a reason that all of a sudden the Giants look a lot like the A's. I mean, there's yeah. these guys are not showing up over there just because they wanted to placate Bob Melvin. I mean, these are really good baseball people. And um, I think, you know, that's a culture that was earned over a long period of time with some really great leadership in place. And it's going to be very difficult for the A's, wherever they are, to to, to get that back uh, consistently with the ownership that's in place right now, I think. Well, let's shift our, our attention over to the Giants. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that there are still these happy stories that bubble up and give you great joy. One of them, I'm sure, uh, came last night when news uh broke out that Garvin Alston is going to be part of the Giants uh, coaching staff with Bob Melvin. Um, this is somebody who uh, virtually anybody who knows him uh, felt joy at that news, which tells you probably everything you need to know about the man. Um, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about him? Wonder what are the Giants going to be getting in uh, in this valuable resource? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've known Garvin for almost 20 years now. You know, he's a guy who... Um, there's very few people who care about their pitchers as much as he's cared about the pitchers that have been under his tutelage for, you know, the many, many years that he's been doing this. Um, you know, he comes to the bullpen coach job as accomplished as any pitching coach, you know? So I think you're, you're looking at a situation where, yeah, Brian Price is going to be the pitching coach. Um, but you've almost got a, you know, equally talented second pitching coach on your, well, not almost, you do, um, on your staff. And, you know, he's someone, he, he led a very um, nice rebound with the Twins pitching staff when he was leading that. Um, he's been a bullpen coach with the A's when they had a very good bullpen. Um, he's done player development. He's done rehab coordinator um, job, which I think is actually um, an underrated aspect of the skills that he brings because he, he not only understands the development path for healthy pitchers, but he also really understands what it takes to get back on track when you've been injured. And I think, you know, with the way that pitching is, with the way that the development, and I know we'll probably talk about this later, but the way that's changed, um, there's a lot of like, you know, understanding of load management and all the different things that have to come into building up a pitcher to be as strong as they can be. And I don't know that there's anyone that has a better understanding of, um, you know, how to balance that kind of workload, you know, than Garvin, who's who's done it at a number of different levels over his career. It's, I think, not coincidental um, to me that Bob Melvin has added two people in, in Garvin and also Pat Burrell, who have a lot of familiarity with players coming up through the system, have worked with players in the system, uh, which should naturally help Melvin uh, get up that learning curve of what kind of talent he's got in this organization. I think that's a pretty smart uh, way, a uh, hack for him basically uh, to learn the organization. Yeah. And, you know, Bob has always been very involved as, as long as I've known him in um, keeping a connection with player development um, and, you know, sort of 
personally calling different prospects at different levels. If he's told that, you know, XYZ player could use a little encouragement or could use a kick in the pants or, you know, just to check in. And, um, you know, he would see guys in spring training who would come up from minor league camp and then ask about them throughout the year because they had an interesting at bat in one game in spring training. So um, absolutely. And, and, you know, the guys that are also are on the staff, a lot of them are, um, you know, have long player development um you know, kind of resumes as well. I mean, Ryan Christensen was one of the top uh, minor league managers in baseball for many years before he joined uh, Melvin's staff in Oakland. So um, there's a very strong development um, system in place with the players that he, with, with the coaches, sorry, that he's brought on to the staff. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the farm system. I, I I gave you the vaguest of all possible rundowns because I spend like all the time in my own head and I really did want to kind of see the organization from fresh eyes. So I wanted to bring you on and kind of ask you about some of your favorite uh, you know, player developments or stories that you saw. Um, but let's just start with an overview of kind of like where you saw the trend lines of the Giants organization going this year um i i know that i'm starting to do my my rankings i feel like boy that guy should be in the top 10 but i'm not getting him to the top 10 so that feels like a good sign for me uh how do you feel the the year was for the organization this year yeah, i thought it was a solid year i mean i think um you know there were some injuries that impacted things um as, as you know they always are um and a few guys maybe who offensively you would have hoped would have taken a bigger step forward that maybe didn't I, I think it's interesting the, the longer we get used to Eugene as being a full season um you know affiliate in that league I think the better we'll have a sense of what those numbers mean the way that you can yeah. kind of do a little translation like you do with Richmond in terms of you know is this really reflective or not reflective of who they can be um and I don't know that I quite have a like backhand sort of translation for that yet but um, but I think overall it was a good another good building step forward. I think it was really really good that they graduated some guys to the big leagues. I think um, even if not every single one of them hit the ground running and became superstars, there there just is a, a benefit to an entire organization when they can see players actually reach the big leagues from that group. Um, I think it gives everybody an extra motivation to believe it could happen here, you know, as opposed to meeting. I mean, cause you are, if you as a minor league player, you're playing for every organization. You're not really just playing for your own, but you do want to make it with the team that you're with because right. there's friendships there. There's, there's a philosophy that you understand. So having that in place, um, I think was a really good first step. And then sometimes it's almost like cracking the seal on a, you know, on a jar. It, it just sort of lets everything rise up. And um, I think that will continue to build momentum next year. Yeah, it's something that, of course, the organization has been waiting for, for for years. It feels like ever since the pandemic, there's been this wave kind of coming up from the bottom. One question I get asked by readers sometimes, and I, I never feel like I answer it very well, is, Around baseball these days in player development, we, it feels like the, there are organizations who build a brand that we do X good, right? Cleveland gets people to throw harder. Seattle gets cuts everyone's walk rate in half. The Dodgers get everyone's launch angle perfected. And I, I haven't been able to put my finger yet on, is there something that the Giants player development is hanging its hat on? Is this is something we get guys better at? Do you have a sense that there is sort of a brand strength growing 
I think the pitching, probably there is a little bit that I think the swing and miss is still pretty significant. If you look around um, the league, you know, they take guys from college um, and I think find the the swing and miss for them um, that, you know, maybe another organization wouldn't quite get as much out of. Um, I think that's partially why, you know, they've not felt the need to sometimes protect guys that you would think would would be, you know, protected in the rule uh-huh. five draft because they seem to be able to replicate those kind of guys fairly easily. Um, I don't know that it's like a particular pitch, like with Cleveland, or if it's a particular, um, you know, sort of philosophy, but I do think their pitching pipeline in general is really strong. Um, And I think, uh, you know, what they're looking to try to build with the hitting pipeline maybe hasn't quite taken full shape yet, but, um, but you see what they're trying to do there with the contact rates and and everything else. Um, And I think, you know, hitting's harder. It just takes longer. You know, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the thing there, but I do think that the pitching pipeline is very strong. And I think that's actually a, a really nice thing to have in your back pocket because that sort of nebulous end of your pitching staff, that is always difficult for teams sometimes to kind of fill that like 15th and 16th guy that's going to be in AAA and come up to your pitching staff. I, I feel like they've got you know, 10 guys that can be that 15th and 16th guy, whereas other organizations are sometimes scrambling for, you know, the first two. Um, And I know that's a depth chart thing. It's not a superstar thing, but I do think that that's an important thing to have. Yeah. I mean, it's very important. I was, I was, you know, standing on the field, you know, watching BP with the, with somebody from the organization. He's like, this is what you do. You stack up black and Seymour and Wizenhunt and Birdsong and you need that volume um, because there's always going to be attrition uh, at, at the top uh, and you can use surplus for trades. Um, do you have a sense of how, what the impact might be uh, on that pitching infrastructure of a Bannister leaving? Um, you know, he's not a person who I actually ever see have seen much on the fields or, or the backfields, but I know he sets up systems that are important to all this process. What do you think that's going to, to do to the organization going forward? Yeah. I mean, I think he's very talented and I think the White Sox will get a huge benefit from him being there. Um, I do think that what he leaves behind is already in place in terms of those systems. So I don't know that um, it's going to be felt like as a immediate drain on the Giants. I think, you know, perhaps the next big thing he'll figure out and implement in the, in the white Sox that maybe the giants won't have gotten. Um, although they're very good at hiring very smart people. So I'm, I'm sure they'll find <laughs> something else. But I do think um, in terms of the setting up of the systems, he did a great job with that. And those don't go anywhere because people right. know the playbook by now. Um, and, you know, as I say, they've got talented coaches up and down um, the system. So I, I think they'll be fine. So uh I'm going to just sort of open up the floor to you here. I mean, I want to just talk about some players who either their development you found really, um, you know, pleasantly surprising or, um, you know, important, you know, sort of crucial to the organization. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll knock like Patrick Bailey off of this because I think we all, all understand that how important his, his uh, development was, but where were some, some places in the system where you thought that that is a really good story? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, Bailey was the obvious one, but I think um, Tyler Fitzgerald and um, the fact that he kind of forced their hand and, you know, 
sometimes front offices get a little bit kind of um, horse blinders in terms of the types of players that they like. And there are certain players that just have to prove it, I think, a little more than others when they have a style that's a little bit different than maybe what fits the sort of rubric that a particular front office likes. Um, and I think, you know, Tyler was one of those. There's there's a little more swing and miss in his game than, you know, this particular front office loves. But the things that he does well, he did so well this year that it really forced their hand. And when he got to the big leagues, I think you could see right away what the dy- dynamic impact of having someone who can have that athleticism, who can play multiple positions, but not just be sort of like a corner guy squeezed into different corners. Like he's an up the middle talent that can play up the middle things well. Um, and the power's there, the speed's there. So I'm really interested to see how he fits into next year's roster because um, I think he can be a lot more valuable than maybe people realized. Um, and then you mentioned, you know, a lot of those, the pitching, um, you know, I think Hayden Birdsong, like, obviously that was like a, a pick they liked when they took him, but I don't know that anyone expected him to get all the way up to double A and doing what he was doing this year. And, you know, including him. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm sure everybody believes they'll be in the big league today after they get drafted, but you know, like, um, you know, Wade Meckler, right. Like all all those, these types of things, but um, you know, like Mason black has, obviously how he's had high expectations on him from where he was drafted, but he's hit every marker and then some as he's gone up. And I think Kyle Harrison being as dynamic as he is, has perhaps taken some of the attention away from just how well positioned Mason black is to be a regular starter for the giants very, very soon. Um, I think that's going to be a really nice story. I think Carson was in hunt. It was unfortunate that obviously his season ended earlier than it um, could have, but like, you know, he was sort of an unknown when they took him. I think they were hoping that they were going to see what they saw before his suspension, but um, it's not like the Cape Cod brief look that they had there was going to cement for sure what they were getting with him. And, um, you know, he looks super fun. You know, it's like, it's almost like Chris Sale, you know, when he came out of um, the White Sox system, like you just don't see pitchers shaped that way. You don't see like the being exactly, you know, like there's just something funky about him. And I think, um, you know, one thing the Giants have always had is guys that throw funky, right? Like yeah. they aren't nor- normal straight over your top, like kind of thing. And I think he'll be, um, you know, a really good one in the line of that. Um, and then, you know, getting Reggie Crawford onto the field, giving him a chance to pitch, um, him coming back with his stuff, looking like it was as good as it was before the the injury, even if he didn't really get stretched out a ton. Um, I think that's very encouraging. Cause again, those were two picks that like, the talent was there, but you know, you didn't really know what you were going to get when um, they finally got to the field. And so I, I think they have to feel really good about where those two guys stand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now guys who throw funky, that maybe is a giant's brand because yeah, no, they, I mean, they I are everywhere. Exactly, you know, 30 <laughs> years, but I think, um, and it fits right. Cause the ballparks are, have been funky whether it was candlestick <laughs> or, or Oracle, you know, you've got, uh, you, you know, you, you need good pitching and you need pitching that, if it's going to pitch to contact, it, it stays within the parameters of, you know, that big cavernous outfield. And, um, you know, these guys have been able to do that. So, um, yeah, he's got, I think Wizard Hunt's got a little Timmy in him in terms of, you know, the look and the skinniness and the whole thing. So, one of the things that pops into my head as you're, as you're, you're, you're going through some of those guys is a lot of these people are players who had to kind of figure stuff out this year, uh, whether it's Kyle Harrison, obviously Tyler Fitzgerald, you know, he sat with me a year ago and said, I'm never going to feel like I felt the first two months of this season again uh, and, and, and really focus on that. You know, Mason Black, 
who had a great year had a horrible month of May and you could like watch him start to start trying to figure out how to change that. And that's, I know fans want to see guys excel Mm -hmm. at every single step, but failing can be an incredibly useful development, you know, for players. Right. I mean, it's in a way it's almost better than succeeding sometimes I think. Yeah, absolutely. If you, you know, nobody gets to the big leagues. And um, I mean, even Mike Trout had to struggle when he first got to the big leagues, right? Like you you have to know what that feels like. Um, and uh, I think actually seeing how players respond to that um, is a big part of evaluating who they are as players, who they are as people. Um, and I, I think that's the, that's definitely something that's been helpful. I think, you know, seeing guys come off an injury and seeing how they work when they come off an injury is, I mean, you hope they don't get injured, but if you, if you see that, you can learn a lot about who they're going to be as well. Because again, there's very few players that get through a career without a serious injury or without some sort of a setback. So, um, you know, absolutely. I think that's, that's good. And you also sometimes end up adding something, especially as pitchers, right? You're trying to figure something out and all of a sudden your grip changes a little bit and all, you know, you've got a new slide that you weren't even looking for. So um, I, I, I do think that's that can be very helpful. You mentioned something about uh, about Fitzgerald, which I think is super important, which is that he's a different kind of player from from what they're normally attracted to. That's a it's a slippery slope because you want to have guiding principles and priorities and values and you want to have sort of ways that you're teaching people, but you can't be in your own box. Um, how do you, how did organizations balance those two things of being open and yet focused at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think every organization has a, a bit of a weakness about looking at their own players, right? Because I think when you're evaluating someone all the time, you you start to see their weaknesses more than you see their strengths, and um, that's part of the reason I think that a lot of um, front office people do better in trades than they do sometimes with their own talent evaluation, because, you know, you can, when you're looking to acquire someone, you're looking at their strengths and you're looking at what they do well. When you have someone, you know, again, it's the, how can I get this guy to be better? Um, and it's just a different mindset. So I, I think that's not unique to the giants that there's that weakness there, but you do tend to sometimes miss, you know, the forest for the trees because yeah. there's just this like sort of, focus on if we could only get Fitzgerald down to 120 strikeouts a year, look at how much, you know, and another organization is going to look in and be like, he hit 20 homers and stole 25 bases and, you know, can play plus defense at shortstop and can probably hang in center field. And that's what they're looking at. Right. So, um, you know, it's how teams end up with, it's how the giants have ended up with good players and other deals because other organizations have made similar mistakes about their own players. So definitely not uncommon at all. um, But I think it's a pretty consistent thing that um, sometimes the worst evaluators of talent are the people who have the talent in their organization. It's, it's, a real trick of you know focusing on what people can do and and polishing up the rest um are there so who are the guys who maybe in your opinion people aren't focused up enough who are the under the radar players that that you really enjoyed watching their progress this year yeah you know I, i'm a sucker for you know pitchers that maybe don't necessarily have the stuff that like wows you, but just consistently get results who can pitch in a lot of different roles. I think Will Jensen's a guy that just never really, people don't talk about him that much, but like, you know, here's a guy who throws strikes. He, he, they made him like the sixth starter slash long reliever, whatever he needed to do. And like, he just did well at it, you know? And, um, 
never going to be like a superstar, but he's the kind of guy that maybe turns into like, you know, a Chris Bassett type or something, you know, like that's that, that guy that can do so many different things and um, is going to just keep doing well all the way up until you finally say, okay, this is a really good, a good pitcher. So I I really liked him. Um, I like Trevor McDonald. I think he's one that it was so interesting because when he was signed, it was a big deal, right? Like that kind of record bonus for that spot in the draft. And then, everything happened and things changed, administrations changed, whatever. And um, it almost got like lost in the shuffle of 2020. I don't even know exactly, but like, you know, there was a couple of years where it took him a little while to to figure it out, but he's as good as you would expect for a guy that got that bonus. And yet yeah. I, people forget that he's that talent level. Um, and the last two years, he's really been quite good. And I think in another organization probably would be one of the pitching prospects that people really talk a lot about. So um, I think those two guys, um, you know, Diego Velasquez is probably not underrated in the sense of, you know, who he was when he was signed, but um, I think he's one that maybe, you know, you, you talked about like, like people talk about a Luciano all the time from the moment he signs and somehow like Velasquez hasn't gotten quite talked about as much in that same vein, but Um, I think he's a guy that'll kind of sneak up on people all of a sudden in a year or two and be like, oh, you know, is he a top 100 guy? Like maybe, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So yeah, those are kind of some of the the ones that I I liked a lot. Yeah. McDonald tier was a lot like Landon Roop that when they were on the field, they were just completely dominating. It's just a matter of getting some of these nagging little injuries that kept him off the field. I I like, I like that you brought up uh, Will Jensen and he's a perfect example of what you were talking about before. Um, that and I, I talked to him about this uh this year it you know he's looking for that that one shape of that one pitch that's going to you know take him from here to here that that outlier pitch and that's the way baseball is these days they can find it it's just kind of trial and error and when a guy like that gets it he can suddenly move quickly so we've talked a lot about the pitching depth this has been a kind of uh, topic in giants world these days that maybe they can use this pitching depth uh, to way to solve some of their other shortages, uh, which is always tricky because you need that depth and you need all those guys. Um, but as we head into the, the, the winter meetings of the trade season, who are the guys that you think get that perfect balance of really good trade value, but also maybe there's enough surplus that the giants can afford, uh, to you to package them and move them away. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do think the pitching will probably be the most um, sought after just because that's the league is probably um, down there. I think if they're not as like wedded to a guy like Averson Ortega or um, Grant McRae long-term as maybe some other organizations might be, I think those guys, the talent is there for another mm-hmm. organization to really be valued um, the way that Canario was when they were making that, that Chris Bryant trade. Um, so, you know, I could see that um, it really depends on what the, another team is looking for. It's very hard in the abstract to kind of know, um, you know, not knowing who they'd be matching up with and what they were looking at, but, you know, if they want to deal from pitching again, as I say, I, I feel like, they can replicate a lot of what they have um, maybe not at the triple a level because those guys are almost there, but like, you know, from that double a on down depth, if they trade some of those guys, I think they've got to feel fairly confident that in a draft, they could bring a lot of that type of talent back. So um, probably that's where they would go to, to look to trade from. 
Um, maybe some of the A ball catching ta- depth too. Like yeah. they've got some really good depth there. And if another organization is, you know, looking long term at their catching depth and could use some there, I think there's there's some guys that could move. Do you have a sense of maybe covering two different organizations uh, helps you in this manner um, as kind of scouts would come through Richmond this year? I, I, I picked up a little grumbling now and again on, on, you know, the fact that they were limiting the Giants were limiting their pitchers so much. And some of that's just, I wanted to see more. I, I came here once a year and I wanted to get a few more pitches. Do you have any sense that that could be an issue in trying to match up? in trades because you, you know you know what you've got and maybe the other clubs don't have quite as good a sense of what they got um could that be a, a problem matching up in trades at all do you think I, don't, I mean maybe some organizations i think most are probably basing a lot of the you know analytically focused offices are going to be looking at like you know data as opposed to um innings pitch and stuff um i do think it it may hurt how they get to the big leagues, you know, like I, I'm not a huge fan of the way that this is trending, um, you know, and I'm not in charge. So, uh, you know, certainly I'm, I'm not necessarily right on this, but I, I do think that there is something to be said at like, you know, Kyle Harrison's career high in innings pitch should probably not have come in the big leagues, right? Like there, there should have been some moments where you wanted to see what the seventh inning looked like for him in triple a. And um, I think, you know, there is a lot to be learned from, I know you want to be careful. I know you want to make sure that you're saving their bullets for the things that are, you know, the absolute most important moments, but um, there's so much to be learned from pitching when you're a little bit fatigued that you're going to have to do in the big leagues that I think um, it, 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 it hurts development a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised at that goes back the other direction a little bit next year. Yeah. And that's another tricky balance. You know, you d- you don't want to use those bullets. They have a really good sense because they have so much data from bullpens as well as games. Um, uh, but you do need to to stretch these guys. Okay. We're going to, uh, we're down to our last few minutes. I'll end on asking you your rule five uh, protection guesses. We've got, we're on, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, so hopefully they haven't named them as we're recording this, but uh, what's your best guess of who will get re uh, protected today? They hardly ever make the announcement before two minutes before the deadline. <laughs> it's I think true. we're probably safe in the not happening right now, but um, I, you know, I'm going to guess Eric Miller and Victor Barracoto. I probably going to be wrong. I'm guessing McCray or, or uh, Ortega will probably also be in there, but those two, the other two, I think are, are for, far enough along in their development that um, they seem more likely to get picked in a rule five situation than um, maybe the younger guys would be. Yes. And I, I went with uh, uh, Miller and McCray and Arteaga, although I didn't feel great about Arteaga, but uh, we'll see how that goes. McCray's an interesting one because they, they really have a lot of outfielders on the 40 man already. Uh, and, and maybe that's another area that they're going to be looking to, to work from uh, this winter. Uh, yeah. You know, and the thing too, I mean, the one reason McCray might be a little ahead um, in ter- in the pack is just because he could defend at a big league level right. right now. And I think, you know, it is easier to carry someone like him on your bench than, you know, maybe a shortstop that's never, um, you know, fielded at the double A level, but um, I don't know. It, it, I would have made a li- bigger list. It's just that um, Farhan's 
track record has been to have a smaller list. So I'm going with the smaller list. So I'll probably be wrong. They'll add like six people this year. There is, there's is no doubt that this is an annual exercise in being wrong publicly. So yeah, we'll see exactly. how it is. Uh, well, Melissa, I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking some time to come, come talk with me. Do you have anything uh, coming out soon that we should be, we should be looking out for? Well, we'll have tons of um, winter meeting stuff. We'll have tons of stuff coming up on, you know, the Ford Frick and, uh, and Crook and Kipe and, and everything else. And um, so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of content uh, for everybody to follow. So um, stay tuned. And we'll, we'll be having some Black Friday sales coming up, too, in case you guys aren't subscribers yet. <laughs> Excellent. Everybody should subscribe to The Athletic, an incredible, incredible value uh, for sports fans. Uh, Melissa, I hope you have a wonderful, speaking of Black Friday, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And um, and then maybe we'll get a Cy Young award in the in the next few days. Who yeah. knows? Even just to be in the top three, uh, you know, Logan Webb, talk about great success stories. He's he's as good a success story as player development can have. So he's awesome. Uh, and uh, thanks to all my listeners uh, for for hanging in with me all year. We'll be back next week with one more podcast before Thanksgiving. Um, have a great holidays, everybody. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Now, babe.